Full Service Radio is proudly supported and hosted by Simplecast, the easiest way for a podcast creator to publish and distribute audio on the internet. For more information, visit Simplecast.com. Tune in to Full Service Radio. Full Service Radio. Full Service. Full Service. Full Service. Full Service Radio. Welcome to Beer Me on Full Service Radio, broadcasting live from the Line Hotel in Adams Morgan, Washington, D.C. I'm your host, Sarah Jane. During my time in culinary school, I gained an appreciation for good beer, and I continued my studies in beer at grad school at NYU. Since then, I have been a beer director, beer bar general manager, and I get to continue to explore the beer world with all of you wonderful listeners. Every week, I will have a guest on the show to discuss different parts of the beer world. From brewers, importers, educators, this will allow us to examine the dynamic world of beer through different lenses. Whether you're new to beer or a seasoned professional, we will have something for you. So I'm very excited for our guest today. Um, she is calling in from the Hill Country in Texas. Uh, Adrienne Ballou, uh, she and I met this uh, past weekend at the Wonder Women of Wine Conference in Austin, Texas. Adrienne, thank you so much for calling in this morning. Yeah, thanks for having me on the show. So, Adrian, you have a really cool background in that you've kind of gone between the world of wine and beer. Do you want to do just a quick little recap for everybody? Yeah. Um, so, I started off in wine in 2009. I was doing my undergrad at UT in chemistry and um, didn't love it. I was kind of looking for a different path. Um, And my sister was going to school in Walla Walla, Washington. So I just ended up applying for harvest internships out there because I had had an interest in winemaking. So I gave it a shot to see if it was something I wanted to really pursue full force. And I totally fell in love with it. So I ended up transferring to UC Davis and um, graduated in 2012 from their Viticulture and Enology program. I went to Burgundy after that to work a harvest, and um, after Burgundy, I decided to maybe try a stint in beer instead of doing a Southern Hemisphere harvest. I also studied brewing at Davis under Charlie Danforth, and he was always a great mentor and encouraged me to go more in the direction of beer than wine, so um, I... I'm from Austin, and I kind of knew about what was going on at Jester King. Uh, My sister was the one that told me about Jester King, and she was like, you know, I know you're really interested in, like, native fermentations, and this brewery is kind of doing this, so maybe check them out. So when I was in Burgundy, I, I literally just sent an email to the info at and kind of gave them my background and story and said... I was interested in doing a six-month apprenticeship with them, um, and that's kind of how I ended up at Jester King. It was really good timing because they were looking to start their fruit refermentation program and also switch their barrel aging program for bourbon to wine barrels. So um, they got back to me pretty quickly, and they were like, yeah, we'd love someone with 
a background in wine to come on. Um, so it was a six month position that ended up, I ended up being there for three years. I got hired on full time as the manager of their barrel and fruit refermentation program. And then I was brewing as well while I was there. And when I decided to go back to wine, um, I decided to stay in Texas. I had seen a lot of improvements in the Texas wine industry, some really exciting things happening. Um, not to mention my partner Garrett and I had sort of found roots here and he's opening a brewery out here in the Hill Country. So it made sense. So between um, Duster King and starting to work in Texas wine, I did go do a quick vintage in Australia, in New South Wales, and then came back to Texas in uh, June of 2016 for my first harvest here. And so I worked at Lewis Wines for a couple years. I was at Cali Winery for a bit, and now I'm at Southhold Farm and Cellar. And I'm also doing my own label through Southhold's facilities called Lightsome. All right, so you, you stay busy. I stay busy. <laughs> yeah. So I want to rewind a little and go through uh, some things for maybe people who aren't too familiar with different terminology and stuff like that. So to start from the beginning here, uh, for those of you who may not be familiar, Jester King is a brewery that I have waxed poetically about many times on the show, but um, it is, what, I'd say about 40 minutes outside of Austin. Um, it is, you know, like a giant barn farmhouse. There are rolling hills. There's a pizza oven. It's absolutely stunning and beautiful, uh, and they make this great wide range of beer. Um and so you had mentioned that they'd been working, and you had been interested in, in native yeast strains. Can you talk a little bit about what that is and why that is so important? Yeah, so I, I guess I'll talk about it first in the context of wine, because that's how I sort of became intrigued and fell in love with more of the style and philosophy. Um, so just like brewing and winemaking, you can buy yeast strains from various labs and use those. Um, you pitch them kind of right prior to primary fermentation, and they, you know, obviously with grapes, you can't sanitize them, so there's always going to be a little bit of wild yeast and bacteria, but typically when you're pitching a lab strain, it outcompetes those. Um, personally, I've always been really interested and kind of drawn more towards wines that were done with native fermentation, so wild yeast and bacteria. I find them to have like a little bit more complex character, like aromatically and on the palate. And so that's really how I was first drawn to that style and philosophy. And then I kind of, I learned about that through beer, um, just reading about Lambic production. Um, and that was really intriguing to me. And so for those of you who don't know, Lambic beer is, they don't go, the wort doesn't go through a heat exchanger, so the boiling wort goes straight into a cool ship, which is a shallow, like, big vessel, and the wort, the boiling wort cools overnight, and the idea is that the wild yeast and bacteria in the cellar and in the air is what inoculates the beer and ferments it. So I found that to be very fascinating and obviously, like, paralleled to the wine world, and Jeff King also has a huge um, cool ship program. So they do that every winter where they're 
taking wort and putting it in a cool ship and it's inoculated by wild yeast and bacteria in the cellar and in the air. Um, and also they have a house culture that my partner Garrett developed back in 2013, which is um, the best way I can describe it is it's almost like a sourdough culture. So you have, he kind of, um, I wish he was here to explain it. He does a little bit of a better job than me, but essentially he took bottle drags from his favorite beers all over the world. Um, mm-hmm. A lot of it was beers from Belgium, France, northern France. And then we took some agarita blossoms from the property. We took kind of just like a mixture of things here and there, like not knowing exactly what yeast strains, but just kind of throwing it all together, brewing several batches with that and sort of manipulating the beers via things like hops to kind of get the culture right to where we wanted it to be. And um, so I would say that, too, is a use of, like, wild yeast and bacteria and brewing. There's also something, I mean, you had mentioned the cool ship. There's something a little poetic about that kind of brewing in that you'll never have that same beer again. That night, that place, that time, the what's in the air is specific to that. So, yeah. you know, and that's kind of the, that's kind of the beauty of it. I feel like. Yeah, it's, um, you know, there's a lot of parallels, again, with wine and that in winemaking, every vintage is going to be different because obviously you have different growing conditions every year. And similarly, I think with uh, with cool ship beers, you're going to have slight variances from year to year because, again, same thing, uh, climate's a little bit different. You're Maybe the times of year you're brewing, the barometric pressure is a little bit different. There's always going to be some variances that change the beers up a little bit. Although I will say with um, with beers that go through the cool ship, I think like after breweries have been brewing those kinds of beers for years and years and years, you do start to develop a lot more of a consistency mm-hmm. because you get a buildup of house culture and that, you know, that really takes a hold of the <laughs> fermentations after a while. Like, yeah. I think in the first couple years at Jester King, we did definitely see a difference between the um, the first two-year cool ship batches. And then after that, there was such, like, a strong house culture of yeast and bacteria in the barrel room cellar that there started to be more of a consistency. Yeah, no, for sure. And yeah. for those of you just tuning in, I'm speaking with Adrienne Ballou. Uh, she currently works at Southhold Farm and Cellar uh, as winemaker, um, but she has extensive uh, experience in working in beer and wine. Um, so I want to go back to what you got brought on for originally, which was um, managing the barrel program um, as well as the uh, fruit aspect um, of the beers. Um, <clears throat> and you had said that they'd, they'd been transitioning from bourbon barrels into wine barrels, and that was, you know, 
that is kind of the move that you're seeing in, in beers, that bourbon barrels, well, not with, so much with the pastry stouts, but um, have become a little less popular. Um, yeah. And wine barrels uh, are, are definitely uh, more popular. And you're also seeing other barrels coming into play. Um, but what was the, for those people who don't know, what is the, what is the difference in managing those two kinds of barrels? Yeah. Um, that's a great question. I, to be honest, I don't have much experience at all with bourbon barrels. Mm -hmm. Like they were phased out pretty quickly after I started at Jester King. Um, I, but I think you would treat them a lot like wine barrels in that, you know, we would steam the barrels to make sure they were swelled up well before use. And I mean, steaming obviously doesn't sanitize the barrel, but it always did a pretty good job of cleaning beforehand. Um, well, like, what would barrel- you... What would you, so you'd get these different barrels in from different wineries. You'd have white wine barrels, you'd have red wine barrels. Um, Mm -hmm. And so you'd start by steaming them. Um, Mm -hmm. Were the, were treatments different uh, depending on the kind of barrel that you received? They weren't. Uh, For the most part, they weren't. The only exception to that is if we got... Like, we got some really old um, Oloroso casks. I believe it was Oloroso. Sherry mm-hmm. casks. Um, and then we got some gin barrels. So if it was a spirits barrel, we actually wouldn't steam it because we were looking for that character to transcend into the beer. Okay. Um, and typically there would be, like, a little bit of sherry at the bottom or a tiny bit of gin at the bottom that, like, you wanted that. Mm-hmm. So if it was a spirits barrel, you know, given it wasn't, like, leaky, we would pretty much just, like, fill them up. Okay. Um, it was more with the wine barrels, um, both, like, the 225-liter and the 500-liter punch-ins that we would steam them before use. And that was really because we looked at those as more of just like a neutral aging vessel. We weren't necessarily wanting to get like wine flavors or oak characteristics in the wine from it. Well, so I always find that interesting because in a lot of different uh, beers, you'll read, you know, uh, from or aged in Chardonnay barrels or fermented in these barrels. Mm-hmm. And... <clears throat> I'm always interested as to why that is. I mean, I I get that it is listed because we took this extra step and there's this extra part of labor and this should be a little more prized. But by the time you guys get the wine barrels, they have been used probably many times. And so they're definitely neutral um, oak. And then you wash them very thoroughly. So it is definitely more of just a vessel there isn't there isn't a whole lot it's imparting correct um i would agree with you on that yeah like when i was at jester king i don't they might it might have changed since i left i left in 2016 Mm -hmm. um so it might be a little different now but we never were like aged in chardonnay barrels or aged in pinot noir barrels 
Um, because honestly, I don't, I don't think that character comes out in the beer. Um, yeah. Again, it's more just like a neutral aging vessel. So um, for a neutral aging vessel, then what is the benefit of putting it in a barrel as opposed to aging it in like a stainless steel tank? Yeah. Because um, the stainless steel tank is definitely more cost effective. It, well, yeah, no, that's a good point. So um, obviously with the first fill, this doesn't totally apply but the appeal of using oak, especially if you're using a mixed culture, you're doing spontaneous fermentation, is you do get a buildup of culture in your oak barrel. Oh, okay. I mentioned earlier, if you you can steam a barrel to clean it, but that's mm-hmm. not going to sanitize it. Oak is porous and it has texture. It's like a great... It's a great vessel for biofilms to form on, which uh, I know is like a scary word for a lot of brewers and winemakers, but for brewers that are using mixed culture, like having a buildup of your house culture in a barrel is, it's great. It's, um, you know, it's like why a lot of really traditional old school cheesemakers also use wood for their cheesemaking is you get get a buildup of your house culture in the wood. And I would say that's one of the most ideal things about using an oak barrel for, for that process. And, I mean, oak is also, it is porous, so it's going to let very small amounts of oxygen in to interact, that, like, micro-oxygenation, mm-hmm. which sounds counterintuitive for brewing, but if you're doing kind of those style of barrel-aged beers, I think that little bit of oxygen does... It, it gives really interesting characteristics to those beers. So you're building all these different complex flavors and aromas and stuff like that. Yeah. I don't think you would quite get that in a stainless vessel. Very true. Awesome. We're going to take a quick little break. Um, okay. And we'll be right back with uh, Adrian on Beer Me on Full Service Radio. If you don't know what ghetto style means by now, the track you're listening to during the break is called Astral Traveling by Keto. If you're tuned in, this is Full Service Radio. Welcome back to Beer Me on Full Service Radio, recorded live at the Line Hotel in Adams Morgan, Washington, D.C. I'm your host, Sarah Jane, and I'm joined on the show uh, by Adrienne Ballou. She is a winemaker for Southhold Farm and Cellar in High, Texas. Uh, but for a long time, she worked at Jester King uh, as the barrel master. And so, Adrienne, we talked a little bit about barrels. I want to talk about fruit management. Mm-hmm. Um, this is something that I've actually asked a lot of different people and I haven't really gotten a clear answer here. Um, as far as fruit management goes, obviously the fruit that you use in a beer or even a vegetable that you use in a beer and the beauty of Jester King is you guys got super, super creative. You put all kinds of stuff in your beer, which I absolutely adore. Um, is that I know labor intensive, 
uh, or labor-wise, foods are different, right? To mm-hmm. put orange zest in a beer looks different than putting cherries in a beer, you know? Yeah. Um, as far as labor goes. But as far as the actual management of the liquid, is it different? Um, yeah. It, I mean, I guess it depends on what you're going for. Um, I'll, I can do a quick uh, recap of like SOPs, kind of what we would do at Gesture King. So beers that we were doing adjuncts like, um, like citrus zest or just kind of like little things, almost like spices that you would add um, Mm -hmm. or like little pieces of fruits, things like that. Um, That was typically, not always, but typically with our younger kind of fresher saisons. And that we would just add through um, the top of the tank typically. Very different for the fruited beers. So with the fruited beers, um, like for example, if we were making Fentau, which is a beer we always made with peaches from Fredericksburg, um, or Stonewall, I should say. Oh, and for those in the D.C. Um, area, she's not talking about Fredericksburg, Virginia. She's talking about Fredericksburg, Texas. (laughs) (laughs) Correct. Um, We would get the peaches in like pretty much right after they were picked. We would uh, cut them and take the pits out, and as we were processing the fruit, we would add it bucket by bucket into either, when I was there, it was either one of our conical tanks, or later on, it was in our wooden fooders, which is a large format oak tank. Mm-hmm. Um, so we would just add those into the fooders through the manway. Once all the fruit was in the tank, we would seal the tank up, and we would rack um, barrel-aged beer on top of that. And one, and then we would gas it. We would blanket it with CO2. Once we saw fermentation really start to kick off, um, just like in winemaking, you get a cap. That's mm-hmm. for CO2 being a byproduct of fermentation is going to push the fruit back up to the top. And we would do punch downs twice a day. Um, once that fermentation was really going, there was, you know, obviously enough CO2 to kind of protect it. Um, once we saw the cap start to sink a little bit, we would try to be pretty diligent about gassing it every day. Um, and, for- and then we would rack the beer off of the fruit into a stainless steel tank and almost like lager it for a few weeks at a cooler temperature while it went through that like last bit of fermentation and for people who maybe aren't familiar so the fruit essentially creates like a raft on top of the liquid and adrian please interrupt me at any point if i'm saying something that's stupid (laughs) or wrong so it's creating a raft at the top of the liquid and punch down it sounds very fancy but really you're literally just taking a what a stick with like a a flat surface at the end right. and you're just it's, pushing it's like a plunger yeah it's like a larger plunger and you're basically just shoving that fruit down into the liquid um and you can also do a pump over right where you're taking the liquid from underneath the fruit and pumping it above um so that yeah. you're not getting inconsistent uh exposure to the fruit correct um, yeah, and we we never did pump overs. We always did punch downs. Um, it's 
like it's more gentle, which mm-hmm. I think especially with beer is a little bit more ideal. And really the main reason of the punch downs, it's like two big reasons. Um, obviously to get more extraction, to get more of that fruit character in the beer. But also um, if that cap dries out on the top, that's when you can run into pretty serious issues with acetobacter. Um, so you always want to keep the cap wet. And the whole punch down thing was actually really funny. I, so when we first, um, the first fruit re-fermentation I did, um, and this is when Jordan Keeper was head brewer at Jester King, we did atrial rubicite. And mm-hmm. with that, we just, um, we just added the raspberries to the barrels mm-hmm. through like a funnel. Um, and we did have two barrels, I believe it was one or two, that did go acetic. You know, that fruit pushed to the top, and then it kind of dried out, and we had issues. And so I, at that point, I was like, I really didn't, I'd never done fruit refermentations in a brewery. I didn't know, there was no, like, protocol, so I just treated it exactly like I would have with a winery. I was like, let's pop the tops off some of these barrels use them as upright fermenters and do punch downs. So that's what we did on the first batch of um, Aurelian Lure, which is with apricots. Mm-hmm. We popped the heads off two twenty fives, and that was the first time we tried the punch down technique. And it worked really well. And so like moving forward, that's primarily what we did with our fruit re-fermentations. So we have a lot of breweries that are doing barrel programs and they're doing fruit refermentations. And I see that a lot of them don't have uh, somebody on the staff who has a background in barrel management or um, winemaking or anything like that. Mm-hmm. And I, I mean, I understand that in, in the brewery world, you're, you're winging a lot of it and you're, you're trying a lot of different things. Um, but I feel like there's definitely some benefit to having somebody on staff with a wine background or with barrel management background um, yeah. so that you can get around some of these issues that maybe a, you know, a classically trained beer professional wouldn't have. Yeah. I mean, I've, I've always said this, and I still really feel this way. I think that the brewing industry and the wine industry, I think it would be really wonderful if there was more crossover and, like, just communication and sharing of techniques. Like, I think I think wineries can could really benefit from using a lot of practices done in breweries, like CIPs, that's which is clean in place. It's a it's a way of cleaning your tanks. That's okay. incredibly efficient, and I have not worked at many wineries that use that. And a lot of winemaking tanks um, also don't allow for CIPs, or they're not built in a way that you can do a CIP very easily. So I think, like for an example, sorry, that's the way that wineries can take a practice done in breweries and implement that in their systems, and. To what you're saying, I think a lot of breweries could use barrel management practices learned from wineries. They could also use, like, something I always pushed for at Jester King was, like, using uh, 
tanks that you would find in wineries for the fruit re-fermentations because it, it made more sense, like the fruiters, the large ferment oak barrels. So I think there is a lot of crossover between the industries, and I always encourage people, either in wine or beer, if they can, to take some time and go do an apprenticeship at the other or, or go do a harvest um, one season. I, I was just talking to a woman at the conference that really wants to get into production winemaking, and mm-hmm. um, she's currently living in Houston, and I was like, you know, if, if you can't find anything in wine right away, I would highly recommend you see if you could do some work in a cellar at one of the breweries in Houston, just because it's so, I think it's so valuable to have that experience if you're going into wine or vice versa. For sure, for sure. And I I feel like I, I totally agree with you in that there needs to be you know, as the the worlds and the, the beverages that you're making kind of blur a little bit, you know, you've got beer that's using so much fruit and it's, you know, getting definitely more vinous in taste. And you've got a lot of natural wines who are, you know, doing kind of similar things to lambic production. I mean, you've got these worlds blurring anyway, so why not, you know, get some advice from each other? Yeah, I completely agree. <laughs> Well, Adrian, thank you so much. I really appreciate you taking the time to call in. And actually, I'll share a little bit here. Your When we were on the phone before the show, uh, Adrian said, oh, hold on, let me just let out my ducks. <laughs> let me check on my coats. You're living this like really, really idyllic life here. So thank you for... Um, Thank you for taking time out of your busy morning. I, I, I really oh, appreciate that. Oh, no problem. That. Actually, it's funny. I, I walked out onto the property to get away from the ducks because they're super loud, and they found me, and they're following me now. So it, if you could see me now, I look ridiculous. I'm kind of like trotting along the field <laughs> trying to get away from them quacking at me. <laughs> I mean, are they just bugging you for food, or have they figured out your insecurities and they're mocking you? Like, what is, what's the... <laughs> Probably a little bit of both. The ducks are really smart. They're very smart. (laughs) (laughs) Well, thank you so much, Adrian. I really appreciate it. Thanks so much. This was a really fun conversation. I appreciate you having me on the show. Of course. And this has been Beer Me on Full Service Radio. I am your host, Sarah Jane. Tune in next week. If you have any questions, comments, concerns, feel free to connect with us on Instagram at Beer Me Radio or via email, beermeradio at gmail.com. Thank you all so much. Cheers.